0: What a blessing it is again to be in fellowship uh, with everyone. Um, glad to be seeing with you all and to be in Word of God with you all. We're in the last portion in part of our worship now in the Word of God, but now in the last portion of 1 Corinthians. So we have been in 1 Corinthians for about a year now, and now we're arriving at chapter 16, uh, looking at some of the concluding remarks of uh, Paul as he is now in... Uh, the concluding words of his letter. And these are powerful words. These are precious words, as it tells us what his desire is for the church in lifting up specific individuals to be our examples uh, for holiness and for service unto the Lord. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 15 through 18. 15 through 18, let's read this passage together. And it says, now, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Archaea, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Archaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit, as well as yours, give recognition to such people. Spot in the word prayer. Our Father, we're grateful for this morning. We're grateful that we get to come before you and listen to your word and sing songs. We're grateful for this setting in which we have an opportunity to learn in quietness and in meditation and consideration of what your word says. Um, We're just happy, Lord, to be with God's people. And we pray that as we are engaging your word now, that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to see wonderful truth in your word, which we have not seen before so that our hearts may be changed and so that we may be in greater worship of who you are. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Did I do my full duty? Did I do my best? These were the words of a college student from Northwestern University. His name was Edward Spencer, and this is what he said after saving 17 people from a boating accident. Around the morning or 2 a.m. of September 8th, 1850, this, there was a boat, a steamship, called Lady Elgin, and it was sailing in the lake or on the lake of Lake Michigan, and it was on a sightseeing trip, and this trip, of course, was not finished given the very fact that the ship had collided with another ship, caused the steam engine of the ship to break through the hull of the ship, thus causing this particular ship to tear apart very quickly. People died, people were swimming, people were holding on to things which hopefully will save their lives. They're holding on to debris and whatever thing they could find to cause them to not have to drown from that particular accident. Now, Edward Spencer was an avid swimmer, so he was able to swim to the shore while others were not because it was a current that was pulling people away from shore. People were holding on to different things, seeking to stay afloat, Edward Spencer tied the rope onto himself and had his brother hold on to the other end of the rope, and with that, he jumped into the lake and swam to as many people as he can find, carrying them and bring them back to shore. He saved about 17 people in a period of six hours of swimming, only to find himself exhausted so much that he really just fell asleep on the shore or just couldn't do it anymore on the shore of Lake Michigan to wake up later in a hospital room with his brother watching him, and his brother and him were looking at each other, and his words were, Did I do my full duty? Did I do my best? Of course he did. He did his best. He went beyond his duty. He served the people. Now, you could ask the question, Should he chose otherwise? Should he choose not to save? And you would say, No, he should have choose to save these people, given the fact that he was an avid swimmer. He could save people, so therefore he should. That was part of his service, and he certainly saw himself as one who should dedicate this kind of service to the people who needed his help. This actually was the hard attitude and is the hard attitude that God would have us to have here in this world, those of us who are believers. See, as believers, we're called to bring the gospel message. We're called to save people, not with ourselves, but to tell them, what Jesus had done so that they may be saved from where they're at today in their absence of God in their lives. This story began in the very beginning when we were first made by God. When we were first made by God, we were made to be holy and righteous as He is holy and righteous. However, we did sin against God. God had told us certain command, and we felt short of that. We sinned against them, as we sin against God. Now, in humanity, there are sins of all kinds in our hearts, We have experiences in our hearts and certainly we have anger and uh, lust and jealousy in our hearts and these are the things which plague our hearts, these things which pollute our hearts and if we allow these things to be carried out in our action, then certainly these are the sins or the actions which are destroying this world, destroying our lives, destroying our relationships. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15 verse 19, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, Sexual immorality, theft, false witnesses, and slander, these are the things which are destroying us. These are the things which are destroying us as a humanity. However, God did not just leave us there, and certainly he could have, and certainly if we would have, then we would have to suffer eternity of hell because God is a just and righteous God who would judge for sins and judge us for our sins. We would be in his judgment. But God is also a loving God. He's a gracious God, and this is where the gospel message comes in, the gospel message which we're called to proclaim. The very gospel message that says, and this is really what happened, Jesus came, who is God, who lived a perfect life, a perfect life which you and I could not live, a perfect life which we cannot have on our own efforts, but he lived it for us. He lived it so that we would be as righteous as he is righteous if we believe unto him. He died on the cross. As he died on the cross, he paid for the punishment of our sins. We couldn't pay for ourselves. Jesus did. He rose from the dead to show us that if we believe unto him, we will also rise from the dead. This is the gospel message. If we believe unto him, we will be victorious over sin and over death. As we believe unto him, we're saved. We're now his children. We're now in his kingdom. However, our work is not yet done because... There is still more work to be done to bring more people to the kingdom. Jesus said this of himself in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His hard attitude was that he would offer his life as service to others. And this is the call which God would have for us as well, that we would offer our lives as service for others. 1 Peter chapter four verse ten. We see these words by Peter: "As each has received the gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace." We're to serve people. We're to offer our lives to others so that others may be drawn closer to God, so that others may benefit in Christ. This is a message which you see here in 1 Corinthians chapter sixteen verse fifteen to eighteen, which is about service. Paul has been teaching the Corinthian church on various doctrines and various ways of christian living however in this passage we're seeing him bring everything together an example of few people Stephanus, fortunatus and archaicus who are examples within the corinthian church that paul wanted to lift up as to say these are the people you need to look forward to or these are the people you need to look examples of they're your examples look to them follow them be like them there are two examples Two examples in terms of who we need to be, as we're going to see in this passage. An example of service, also an example of encouragement. First, when we look at the example of service of one of them, which is Stephanus, we see this in verse 15 to 16. And it says, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Archaea, and they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. As come this passage, we're seeing Paul addressing Stephanus, but really this is a part of everything which Paul has been writing about, which is that he's been encouraged in the Corinthian church to be a healthy church. He's been writing to them about unity. He's been writing to them about love. He's been writing to them about service, about holiness. He's been writing to them about everything that he could think of to really encourage this church to be a holy church unto God. However, as he's writing these things, his really coming to the end of it all and he's been telling them he loves them he's been telling them his travel plans he's been telling them that he desires to see them he's going to send timothy to them he asked apollos if apollos would come apollos said he will come later we see paul's heart poured out for the corinthian church but there's yet one thing which paul has not right to the corinthian church about he has one more thing he wants to mention to the corinthian church which is something is missed out through the entire letter Throughout the entire letter, he's been rebuking the Corinthian church. He's been listing individuals within the Corinthian church who has not been healthy for the Corinthian church. There are individuals who are prideful. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, where there are individuals who are boasting themselves. Paul says, each one of you are saying, I follow Paul. I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. There are individuals who are looking at themselves at their contribution to the body of Christ and their service, or who they follow, and they're saying to others, look at me, I'm better than you. And certainly when Paul says there are those who say these things and they can look around the church or perhaps look at themselves and say, well, Paul, you got me. I'm that person. There are also bad examples, negative examples of lust. There was one individual in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, who was having sexual immoral relationships with his father's wife. He says this. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. It's a horrible sin. And certainly when Paul mentions this, they can look around or they just say, oh, that's that guy right there. There's a bad example. And there are other individuals who are suing one another within the church. We saw this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 which, 1. which one of you has a grievance against another? Does he dare to go before the law, before the unrighteous, instead of the saints? There are people who are going to Gentile courts. They're going to these courts which are, have the authority of the Gentiles, and they're two believers just taking advantage of each other, telling wrong things about each other, seeking to defraud each other. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8, Paul rebukes them in their actions, saying, you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. You're seeking to go to the law with the brothers and take advantage of them financially. Try to get every penny out of your brother, get every penny out of your sister. Whoever it is that you feel upset about, you're having this selfish heart, this heart which is unlike Christ, unloving loving heart toward another brother, another sister in the Lord. There are those also who despise the Lord's table. There are people who are going to eat at the Lord's table, and they're not waiting for another. People come to the Lord's table, and remember back then, the Lord's table was a table which was combined with a love feast. It was not just the grape juice and the crackers, and you just eat in your pew. They actually had a table, and people actually ate together, and they were looking at each other, and they were fellowshipping with each other, and it was a wonderful time. But then the Corinthian church did not do this. They were eating ahead of each other. We saw this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21-22. It says, For eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? They're those who simply did not care for others. They were despising others. They were despising the poor. The poor were coming later, and all of a sudden, there were no food on the table anymore. Paul says, don't you love others? Don't you consider others? Why don't you eat at home and save this time for your fellowship with your other believers? There were people who were selfish, and certainly when Paul points that out, Paul, in his letter, could cause others to think, well, perhaps that's me, or perhaps that's us, or this other person. And then there are others who are serving in such a way they are prideful, thinking that themselves are better than others. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, there are individuals who are saying, I have no need of you. The eye was saying to the hand, I have no need of you. The head saying to the feet, I have no need of you. It is because these are the people who are on stage. These people who are participating in a way which in service that they're known and there are others who are not known. People perhaps are wiping the table. People who perhaps are cleaning the floor. They're just unknown people within the church. And those who are known within the church are saying to those who are unknown, I have no need of you. Whether you're here, whether you're not, it really does not matter. I'm here. I'm the most important person. So these are individuals Paul had rebuked and certainly when Paul lists these names or this act, these actions, even though he had not listed names, people could look at one another and say, well, that's you, that's me, that's us. They have bad examples of what not to be throughout the entire book of 1 Corinthians. So Paul has not done is this. Paul has not given one single good example. Now certainly he gave himself said, well, you know, I've given you so, much, so many bad examples. At least you should imitate me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, we see Paul saying, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul himself is living a holy life unto the Lord. He's living a pure life unto the Lord. He's living a committed life unto the Lord. He's living a humble life unto the Lord. And he's calling the Corinthian church to say, hey, look at me. Look at me. I, I'm the one you should follow. But Apostle Paul actually isn't the one that is with the church of Corinth at all times. He's an apostle. He's the one who travels. He's the one who plants churches. He's the one who's going to different places and sharing the gospel there. And and his ministry is everywhere within the Roman Empire. So who within the Corinthian church can Paul point to and say, that is the person you ought to be like? Now, there are many bad examples. We know that. So don't be like that. But who is the one person you could be like? That's the point of right now. Paul missed it. He said, well, I actually have to mention this one thing. At the end of my letter, I forgot to mention this man, we see this man, Stephanus, Stephanus, and we see him saying, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Archaea, begins there. Who is Stephanus? Well, Stephanus is a man, and he has a household, and the household could be his family, or his servants, and whoever is composing of his household, they have dedicated themselves, as we see, in tremendous ways to the Lord. First of all, we see their dedication in the very fact that they're first converts of Achaia. The word first converts actually is the word first fruits. If you look at some other translation, it's the word first fruits. It's actually a better translation to consider the first fruits because Paul is actually getting idea across. The very idea is that if the Corinthian church understand the Jewish knowledge of first fruits is that first fruits are offered to God, and after the first fruits, after you offer the first fruits to God, you will then receive whatever comes to that, comes after that as the blessings of God. We see this in the calling of God and offer the first fruits in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 10. Where God commanded these words, speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land I give to you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheep of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. So they're called to give the first fruits to God. And as they do so, God will bless them. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, and with the first fruits of all your produce, and your barn will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. So whatever it is that they get from the field, if they have sheaves, the crops, whatever it is that they get, the first fruits of what is gotten there as the part of the first season, whatever it is that they could uh, gather, that instead of keeping for themselves, they're to give it to the Lord as a dedication to the Lord in faith that God is going to provide for them. Goes with the cattle, the sheep, whatever it is that they have, and God will promise what God will give to them. He promises so, saying that if you do so, you're barns will be filled with the plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. This is the promise of God. Now, these people, the house of were the first fruits of Achaia. They were the one of the first ones to get saved, and they were the faithful ones. And they could look at themselves and say, you know what? We're the first offerings to God here in the land of Achaia. The, per- the gospel was preached Produce coming from the ground, people getting saved, we're the ones first offered to the Lord, we're the faithful ones. And because we're the faithful ones offered to the Lord, now the church of God is flourishing because God has promised to bless the church with people, with ministries and other things that will make the church flourish. But it is because these men and women who are part of this household are the first fruits of care. They were the faithful ones who were there at first. And Stephanus could have boasted about that. Could have been a boastful man and say, well, you know what? The only reason why all of you guys are here is because of me. I'm the first one. I'm the OG. I'm the one who is, who is uh, uh, planning everything for everyone else. I'm, I'm the one who set the motion for everything. He could have said that. could have been prideful about that. But he wasn't. He wasn't. You can actually see Paul felt safe around this person. That this person isn't going to utilize his stance and his his place here as the first one being here or even his relationship with Paul for his own advantage. In First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 14 to 16 there was a conversation between Paul and the Corinthians because the Corinthians are boasting on themselves saying well you know what I follow Paul I follow Paulus I follow Cephas I follow so and so and therefore I'm better than you. Paul says this is not a hard attitude you should have. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14 to 16. He says, I thank God I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius because if I did so, you might boast that I baptized some of you and others weren't baptized by Paul so therefore you're better than others. He says in the verse 15, also 16, so that no one may say that you are baptizing my name. Not, but he did say this. He said, but I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. He baptized Stephanus, but he did not felt He's secure around Stephanus, or Stephanus is going to use this opportunity which he has with Paul, his relationship with Paul, and say, you know what, I'm better than anyone else because look at me, I'm baptized by Paul. He wasn't that kind of person. He was a humble person. He was a man of service. He was a man of, of commitment to the Lord and to the Lord only. It's not a selfish man. We see this in verse 15 in who he is. He says he has devoted or they have, the household, devoted themselves to the service of the saints. It's a tremendous characteristic of this household. There's three characteristics of their service, which you can see here in a short verse of 15. They have devoted themselves, first of all. It's a voluntary, it's a self-volition in their service. They're doing it from a willing heart of volition. They're not doing it because other people are telling them to do it. They're doing it because they have convinced themselves to do it. We see this in verse 15. They have devoted themselves. The Greek construction of this word is a middle voice. Now, in the English construction, you might have active voice, meaning that you do something to someone else. You have the passive voice, meaning someone else is doing something to you. But in the Greek language, there's a middle voice. A middle voice meaning means that you are actually doing something to yourself. It's going from yourself back to yourself. That's what this word means it's saying the word devoted has a middle voice to it it is saying that these men or women who are part of this household are devoting themselves no one is telling them to do it not doing it because they have a boss over them they're not doing it because someone else is saying can you do this they're not doing it because they're signed up to be by others in the ministry they're doing it because they themselves know that they should be doing it they sign themselves this job it is because they understood the right motivation 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He calls the Corinthian church to be abounding in the work of the Lord after he has explained to the Corinthian church the gospel message, the resurrection, the fact that you are going to be In heaven forever, that sin is going to be defeated. Death is going to be defeated, and therefore, because of what Christ has done, you need to be abounding in the work of the Lord. This is the inner motivation. You're not doing it because other people are telling you to do it. You're not doing it because you have to do it because now you're signed up, and other people will be disappointed if you don't do it. You're doing it because this is coming from you. You're motivated. You're self-motivated. These men and women are self-motivated. They devoted themselves to the service of the saints. They are casting this vision for themselves. Another characteristic of their devotion is that they've devoted themselves to a ministry. They take ownership of the ministry. They have not come into ministry and say, you know what, I'm going to just do this one thing, this one, uh, one little thing, and I'm just going to walk out. Whether this thing succeeds or not, it really doesn't matter. They devoted themselves to a ministry. We say, how do you see that? Verse 15, it says, they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. The word service is the word diakonos, or the the exact word diakonia, which is here, which comes from the word diakonos, which, which is also the word we get deacons from. They are assigning themselves to be servants for the saints. They assign themselves to be deacons for the church of God. Now, we know deacons is something which you've been given the office of. The reason why I begin the office of it is because you have been given a particular role, if you're a deacon or deaconess, to take care of a specific aspect of the church. You're to care for God's people in a specific way. We see this in Acts chapter 6 verse 3, where there was a problem within the church. Now, there are ministries going on all this time, but there's a particular problem in which the widows were not given the proper distribution of food. And so there's a ministry that needed to be focused on. So the apostles gathered everything, everyone together, and said this in Acts chapter six, verse three. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among them, among you, seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and the wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So the apostles getting everyone together and say, we're gonna focus on this duty. We're gonna focus on this ministry. Now there are ministries going on throughout the entire book of Acts, even. Right after the church has been saved, I'm sure that people were encouraging each other, people were serving one another, but there was not a specific area of ministry where the deacon are saying, we're going to dedicate ourselves to this aspect of the church. It needed that. They needed that for administrative purposes. Otherwise, this is going to just kind of fall through the uh, cracks, and people are going to just kind of just assume other people are doing it, and so there are nobody who is saying, I'm going to be in charge of this. I'm going to watch over this. I'm going to make sure this happens. So therefore, the apostles are saying, we're going to make sure someone is in charge of this and making sure it happens. So throughout this time, we're seeing a development in the church where many ministries are developing. It's not just a um, free-for-all, one would say, but it becomes more so like different aspects of the church. Handle this part, handle this part, handle this part, and you focus on this part. If you focus on this part, well, you've done a good job. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 5 in which Paul says there are a variety of services. Again, the word diakonos is used here. Variety of services is talking about spiritual gifts, the variety of spiritual gifts as ministries. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, we see this, that the church of Philippi was begging Paul and his companions earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The word relief is ministry. It's talking about money. It's talking about financial support. So there's a ministry of giving, which Paul is talking about here. In Acts chapter 6 verse 4, the apostles are saying it's not right for us to serve tables while neglecting the ministry of prayer and of the word. So there's a ministry of prayer and ministry of preaching God's word. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul says, it's a ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a ministry which he had received as an apostle of the Lord. So there are a variety of different ministries. And as you're participating in the church of God, you're saying, this is a ministry which I will handle. This is a ministry which I will have ownership of. I actually take pride in this, that in a positive sense, um, not a negative, uh, selfish pride, but in a sense, I'm going to make sure that it is done and it's done right. I'm not just going to walk in and walk out and just do one thing and say, well, you know, the rest of you going to handle the rest of it. I'm kind of done. I said I'm going to give you uh, five minutes, and after five minutes, I'm done, and the rest of you take care of everything else. That's not what these men are doing. These men are devoting themselves to make sure it is done. They devote themselves to a service, to a ministry of the saints. Not only so, they also are devoting themselves in a way that is very personal. Very personal. They're personally invested in the ministry. You so say, how do we know this? What's well, come from the word devoted. The word devoted is the word tasso. It literally means that you're attaching yourself or assigning yourself habitually to a particular practice. That's what it means. So in the King James Version, if you actually turn to the King James Version of the Scripture, it actually has the word addicted here. Addicted instead of devoted. Now, I know why they changed it, because addicted in our culture sort of has carried on a negative connotation. You don't want to be addicted to drugs, you want to be addicted to alcohol because your power or your kind of within the power of the substances and you don't want to be in that kind of position. But back in the days when they actually used the word addicted, didn't have this kind of connotation. And so when the translator translated as addicted, it was actually, in a sense, of positive addiction. You're attached to the ministry. You're thinking about that ministry. You're waking up, you're thinking about how you're going to get this done. You're going to sleep, you're thinking about how you're going to get this done. When you're away, you're thinking about how you're going to get this done. You're, you're on a vacation, you're still thinking about church. How are you going to get it done for the sake of God, for the sake of the saints? You're thinking about ministry all the time. You're addicted in that way. You're personally invested in the work which God's called you to do. It's a wonderful, wonderful way to perceive ministry. This is the heart attitude which we all need to have. We need to be personally devoted. We need to be personally invested. We need to have an ownership of ministry. We need to feel such a way that we're actually motivated in our inward heart to do it. It's not because someone else is telling us to do it, but we're doing it for the sake of the Lord because we are compelled to do it by the Spirit that is within us. There is a wonderful, wonderful characteristic which we see here in the life of Stephanus. And as he does this, the church is called to do this. We see in the verse 16. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and labor The church is to be submitting to those. Now, these men are humble men. These people are devoting themselves. They're not ones who would carry themselves with an A-type personality and say, Well, you know what? Look at me, follow me, because I'm such a powerful person with powerful personality. No, they're just servants. And given the fact they're servants, the church had to be very, very intentional to pick them out. Otherwise, other people who have A-type personalities, other people who have strong personality or intimidating personality, come to the church and say, well, follow me. And these people will be driven out. And those people actually are being followed. Those who are unhealthy or in leadership at that point would be tremendous damage to the church. So Paul actually is instructing the church, hey, you need to look for these men who are humble and intentionally subject yourself to them. Intentionally submit yourself to them. It's the word "hupatasso." It means to come under another person. It's used throughout all Scripture. You have examples of this after example in which parents uh, or the children are called to submit themselves to parents. The wife is called to submit themselves to the husband. Those who are in the congregation to submit themselves to the leaders. Examples of examples of this in Scripture. For example, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives... Submit yourself to your own husband, as to the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your master with all respect. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reference for Christ. So throughout the entire scripture, we have communities of home, communities of the church. And within those communities, it wasn't just a free-for-all where everybody just do their own thing. Even though we're all one in Christ, there is no hierarchy within the body of Christ, but there are different roles so the husband is to lead the wife while the wife follows the husband. The church will have leaders, pastors that lead the church, and the church is to select the leaders and follow the leaders. And the parents are to lead their children. The children are to submit to the parents and follow the parents. And in order to have a healthy community, you need to have healthy leadership and healthy followers who will submit to the healthy leadership. This is all throughout Scripture. It's not a free-for-all thing where everybody just have their say, but there are leaders, leaders who are godly, godly, Godly who are leading. And the church is to select those who are godly and call them to leadership, even though we're all one in Christ. Even though we're all one in Christ. Now, this word, subject, this word, subject, is not a dirty word. It's a word in which we are committing ourselves to the will of God. We're choosing men and women in such a way that these are the men and women who are recognizing who will lead us well. In order to do this, we need to have three hard attitudes before us. See, if a person who is humble before you and who is not going to throw his weight around you, who is not going to just intimidate you to do the things, who is not going to bully you, it is very possible that you might ignore this person. So throughout Scripture, even in this letter and other letters, we see Paul calling us to humility. If you do not have a humble heart in and of yourself, you are not going to have or find a humble person to follow. It's hard for you to recognize a humble person if you are not humble in and of yourself. So therefore, we saw in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, that we're called to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. You must have this hard attitude in which you're counting others as more significant than yourself in order to recognize leaders who are humble, who can lead you well. So subject yourself to such men or women. And there also is an intentional deference to them. You must be intentionally deferring to them. Find out who they are and defer to them and what their thoughts are what their opinions are. This is what Paul is doing to Paulus. When Paulus did not want to come to Corinth, Paul just simply says, okay. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 12, you know, when Paul asked Paulus to come and Paulus didn't want to come, Paul simply says he will come when he has opportunity. He's deferring to Paulus. Paul has his hard attitude of looking at Paulus as a leader and say, you, I will humble myself before you. I will let you do the leading. I will submit myself to you. And there are also those who Paul valued in his life. You have to value those who are of that nature in the church. In, first, uh, in Romans chapter 16, Paul gave 24 individuals who he valued. He said in Romans chapter 16, verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila. And there's Eponiatus. and verse 6, there's Mary. Verse 6, Greek and and Junia. And verse 8, Greek and Pilatus. There are individuals who are very, very important to the church. And Paul wanted to mention these individuals to the church to make sure the church actually recognizes these individuals and submit themselves to them because they are the backbone of the church. It's not those who are flashy. It's not those who are seemingly, those who can speak really well, those who have a lot of personality that are leading the church. those who are humble. Those who are who are careful to, to defer to others, those who are loving others, those who are going to be there with you through the day in and day out, menial tasks, those are the leaders of the church. You see, this is not something which we would expect in our own lives. There was an argument between the disciples right before Jesus went to the cross, and the argument was, who is the greatest? We see this in Luke chapter 22, verse 24. It says, a dispute rose among them as to which one of them is to be regarded to be the greatest. They were saying, you know what, I'm the greatest because I've been with Jesus longer than you or I've seen Jesus do this or I've done this and done that for God. They were seeking to be the greatest. And their conversation is characterized by Jesus in Luke chapter 22, verse 25. It says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Don't we want to be that? Want to exercise authority over people and want to be the benefactor. You want to say, you know what, you may eat out of my hand. Right? That's how we know that you submit to me because you are eating out of my hand. You may kiss my ring. We want to be their benefactors. We want to exercise lordship over other people. That's what these people are all about here in Luke chapter 22. The disciples, they, they're doing ministry and they're saying, you know what, I'm better than you. I want you to submit to me in my leadership because I'm doing all this and if not for me, certainly none of these things could happen. But Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verse 26, Not so with you. It's not how you should operate. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Let you want be the one who serves. Let you want be the one who is not noticeable. Let you be serving in a way which people don't know that you've done it. Let you fade into the background. I think about the way which you pick leaders, right? We pick leaders like Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. He was Saul as a handsome young man. was not a man among the people of Israel, more handsome than he, from the shoulder upwards, taller than any of the people. I mean, he was a physically impressive guy. And we want that guy. We want that guy to be our leader. But Jesus said, no, this is what you should get. You should get this. In John chapter 13, Jesus taught this example of himself. He began to, Paul people to look at him. He took up a basin. He took some water. He wrapped the towel around his waist. He began to wash the disciples' feet. When he came to Peter, Peter said this in John chapter 13, verse 8, you should never wash my feet. Why did Peter say this? It's because that's not who Peter wanted to be. Right? You can say, you know what, you follow that guy. I don't want you to, I don't I don't want you to be that guy because I'm following you because you're embarrassing me. You're embarrassing me, Jesus. Don't do this, Jesus. Because I don't want to be seen following you while you're doing that. So Peter said, you should never wash my feet. But Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. So Peter then washed. In the end, Jesus said this in John chapter 13, verse 12 to 15. Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord in your right, so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher, I've washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I've done you this is an example you're not following A type personality leaders, you're following those who will wash feet those who are seemingly those who are not examples of leadership in this world but they're examples of leadership within the church they're humble, they're those who will bend they're they're, their preferences for you they're there to serve you this is what or who Stephanus is Stephanus is laboring in service. And Paul says, you need to follow him. You need to follow him. It's another example. Another example of service. There are those who labor in encouragement. Encouragement. We see this verse 17 through 18. It says this, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Archaicus because they have made up for your absence for they refresh my spirit as well as yours give recognition to such people. So you have two other men who are here. There's Stephanus, which we talked about. There's also Fortunatus, Archaic, because we really don't know much about these two other people. Fortunatus is uh, a Latin term that means the blessed one, and Archaicus simply means the one who is coming from Archaea, which is everybody else in that region. So these are not men we know much about. But we all know we could know more about them, perhaps through other parts of Scripture. We know in verse 17, Paul says that what they've done is this, They have made up for your absence. They made up for your absence. So what the Corinthian church did is that they sent these men to Paul in Ephesus to represent them. There's a correspondence that is already happening between Paul and the Corinthian church before the letter of 1 Corinthians. You might think the letter of 1 Corinthians is the first letter that Paul has written to the Corinthian church. It is not. It's the second letter. Actually, Paul wrote four letters and we lost two, so therefore we only have two left. The 1 Corinthians actually read the second letter and the 2 Corinthians actually the fourth letter. The reason why we say this is because Paul had referred to his first letter to the Corinthian church in the letter of 1 Corinthians. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, where Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter. I wrote to you in my letter, a previous letter before 1 Corinthians. It's a letter which he wrote to the Corinthian church, Tell them several things regarding who they should be. And the Corinthian church actually wrote back to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. It says, now concerning the matter which you wrote. So Corinthian church had written back to Paul to tell Paul what they thought about his first letter to the Corinthians. And how did that letter arrive at the hands of Paul? Well, it is likely arriving at the hands of Paul because of these three people who brought the letter to Paul, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and also Archaicus. So there's an interaction between Paul and the Corinthian church on behalf of these men. And these men actually had an effect upon Paul. Paul loved these men. Verse 17, he says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Archaicus. Why? Because verse 18, they refresh my spirit. These are men who refresh Paul. The word refresh literally means rested. It's the same word used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all who are heavy, laden, and labor, and I will give you rest. If you're laboring, you're heavy laden, I will give you peace, I will give you rest. The very word rest is the word refreshed, which we see here in verse 18. These people cause Paul to feel refreshed, to feel rested. Now, this is the same word or same connotation which you would have if someone recharges you. Perhaps the best way to understand what these men are doing for Paul is to understand the negatives, which is that there are individuals who drains you, right? Individuals who drains you, and I'm not talking about anyone here. I love everyone, and we all know we love one another, but there are individuals in our experiences. We, whether it be our coworkers or whether it be our boss, right? we feel drains us, right? These are individuals who are always asking us to do things who is not appreciative of us, who, who is uh, taking advantage of us, individual who drains us, and we, we just do not want to have contact or we want to limit our contact with these individuals. This is not who these people are. These people actually end up refreshing Paul. They recharge Paul. It's the opposite of being draining. These are the people who make Paul feel like he can continue on in ministry, we have these people in our midst, do we not? Individuals who sit with you. You come to church and feel sad and depressed. You don't feel like you can go on anymore. Individuals sit with you and talk with you and encourage you. And they will just, just be there by you and with you. And you say, you know, I'm not taking up too much of your time. No, you're not. We just want to pray with you. And after you pray with this person, you just feel rejuvenated to continue on in your service, in your work for the Lord. When you first come in, you're Reject, uh, you're dejected, you're, you're, you're sad and depressed, you feel like you're undercharged, but now after that conversation, you feel like you can go out and face the world again. This is what these people are doing. Fortunatus and Archaicus and Stephanus, they're of, of a recharging nature for Paul. They're not pastors who will go back to their room and just kind of study and never be in contact with people. They're people who are with you or by you, who will never ever feel... Make you feel that they're not not wanting you to be there. They're people who recharge you. They refresh your spirit. So Paul says in verse 18, what you need to understand is this, the whole church need to be like this. The whole church need to be like this. Verse 18, we see Paul saying, give recognition. Give recognition to them. Put them on center stage. Put them on on the podium. Put Put them where people can see them so that people can follow them as examples. So that people can look to them and say, be like them. Give recognition to them. Submit to them. Because these are precious folks within the church. See, we need people like this within the church because we all go through suffering at times, do we not? And sometimes suffering and tribulation and temptation all come to us at the same time. We're going through some physical things with our lives and all of a sudden Satan comes to us with a temptation and We're we're just drained. We're, we're tired and we're, we, 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 we're tempted and... And we want this to stop, and we we're coming to the body of Christ, and we we're seeking for help. And this is what Job had been going through. In the book of Job, he had his family taken away. He has his possessions taken away. His wife was now cursing him. He's now with bolus and different kinds of sicknesses in his body. His friends came. His friends actually were good friends before they started talking. We see what his friends did in Job chapter 2, verse 12 to 13. It's a wonderful, wonderful distribu- uh, uh, description of their care for Job. He says this, When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, but they saw that his suffering was very great. I mean, what a wonderful, wonderful coming alongside another person with suffering, right? I mean, you sat on ground with that person for seven days and seven nights and put dust all over your head i mean that's a wonderful come alongside right it is i mean these friends were were great i mean afterward they they started accusing job of sin that was horrible but everything up to chapter two was wonderful example for us because ultimately in order for us to be of that encouragement to others we have to be with them we have to be with them Romans chapter 12 verse 15, we see this command. We're to rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. How are you going to rejoice with those who rejoice if you're not knowledgeable of what they're going through, if you're not sitting with them and hearing what they're going through? If you're just in and out of their lives, certainly you cannot rejoice with them because you do not feel the same thing which they feel. You cannot weep with those who weep because you do not feel what they feel. You cannot sympathize with them because, again, you're just in and out, in and out of their lives, in and out of the church, in and out the body of Christ. But in order for you, in order for you to carry this out, in order for you to be such example, encouragement to others, you have to be present. You have to be available. Because all of the, all, ultimately, all of us eventually at some point in our lives, we need this. I think about the times when my, my trials and, and times where my temptation in my own mind, my heart turns dark. Turns dark. I don't know about you. Mine does. I start thinking evil thoughts about people. It's evil thoughts about God. God, why are you doing this? Oh, this person doesn't care about me, and this person just has no notice of me even though I'm doing this for them. And I have people come to me as a pastor, and they, they struggle with this because I know I struggle with this. I know congregations do struggle with this as well. Problems in their own lives, nothing to do with me. Now, but they're not complaining to me and saying, well, you don't care about me, or the body of Christ doesn't come alongside me. And they're having evil thoughts. And so many, of us, so many of us could have that, right? We could have evil thoughts about God, saying, God, why did this happen? Or, or this person and that person or that pastor or whatever is, is this and that because we have a sin nature. And the reality is that we need others to pull us back in because we ran out of energy. We need people to pull us back in, point us back to Christ. We need to be energized again to think in a rightful way. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Paul says, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there are any or anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We need to have these things in our hearts, but if we're just by ourselves, isolated, then it is very hard for us to be in these thought processes. We need others to come alongside of us and say, hey, you need to, you need to know that God is good. You need to know that people love you. You know, you, you, you know, we have these thoughts, right? Well, people don't care for me. Have you seen that person, what it's done for you? Remember that this person did this for you? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I totally forgot about that. Totally forgot. Because we are captivated by our evil thoughts. We just need people around us to be available for us to tell us what we need to hear. Care for us in such a way. See, throughout Scripture, it's never about ability. It's never about ability. Stephanus and Fortunatus and Archacus won't praise for the ability, It's not like these people have tremendous ability that they could use to serve the people of god what they did have was this though they had availability it's not ability it's availability they were available available for people available to serve people available to be in the presence of people i think about wonderful exhortation of jesus in matthew chapter 10 verse 42 he said this whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water Because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Just a cup of cold water. How many of us struggle in our ability to give a cup of cold water? No, it's not about ability. It's about your availability. The reason why you do not give a cup of cold water is because you are not available to do so. You're not present, or you just simply don't want to do it. You're not not there to care for the individual's needs. But if you're there and you know of the need and you care enough, then certainly even offering a cup of cold water, Jesus says, you will by no means lose your reward. It's about you being available. And as you're available, it becomes a habit of your life. I think of a wonderful, wonderful interaction between Jesus and the, the, the sheep and the judgment of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 25, verse 35. When, when I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. You did all this for me, Jesus was saying to the righteous. And the righteous responded this way in verse 37 Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you stranger, welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison, and visit you? When did all this happen? I don't remember. And Jesus said, well, because you've done it for the least of these, you've done it for me. But for the righteous, they're not counting it. It's become a habit of their lives when Jesus comes to them and say, you've done all this for me. And they're saying, when? When? I don't remember the things I've done for the Lord 20 years ago, do you? I don't. But it's wonderful what? That the Lord remembers. God remembers. For you, it's just a habit of life. But God remembers every detail of what you've done for him. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, He says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. What a wonderful interaction between us and the Lord when we come before the Lord. And God says, well, you've done this for me, that for me. It's like, man, that's like, I felt like eons ago, but I just did it because it was in my heart. I gave a cup of cold water to this individual. I'm thankful that what I've forgotten, you remember. I'm thankful for that. What a wonderful, wonderful characteristic to have as a member of the body of Christ. So these are the two characteristics, which are examples for us. You're laboring in service, you're laboring in encouragement, which is seen in the lives of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Archaicus. And ultimately, what we are doing in the body of Christ is to recharge one another. We're to recharge one another. I think about these days I'm having fun time or family time with my son Matthew and he always just asked me always asks me to go and play remote car control a remote control car with him he wants to play that and so we were racing around the car uh, racing around the house with a remote control car and just just having fun with that he's been playing that and he's been playing that with all day long he, he loves it so we end up buying rechargeable batteries because there's no way that we're going to keep battery you know keep putting batteries in those things and just just too much money so we we'll buy rechargeable batteries and put it in he would come to me and when we are racing, he would say, You know, dad, look, like it's so slow. I can't make really it go forward. I can't turn left. I can't turn right. I would say, Okay, you know what? Let's put a new battery in there. And once we do, it will go fast again. See, this is, is what we need to be in Christ. Many of us have great motors. You have a car, recharge, uh, a remote control car, they have great motors. But if there are no battery inside, it can't go anywhere. You may have a great motor within you. There's a lot of potential in you. I know there is. Few of us serving, but there are a lot of potentials within the church of God. Always more potential than those who are serving. right? Always within the church of God. But many of you have ran out of energy. You've been sad and depressed and dejected over a past situation, a past circumstance, a past experience, and you say, I'm done. I'm done. But what if you are recharged? What potential could there be in your life of service to God? That we're here as a church to recharge one another in the Lord. First Peter chapter four, verse ten, we see these words, and each has received the gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whatever gift you have, we're using it to serve one another so that together we may promote more usage of God's gift to us for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful we, that we get to come to this passage and, and look at how you are working our lives in ways that are very personal. We know, Lord, that ministry and church is not just something which we do, but it's something which we are. We pray, Father, that we would learn from these examples more and more so in our lives. Example, Stephanus Fortunatus Archaicus, in which you're making ministry and the work of service to the saints to be a part of who they are. Help us, Lord, to arrive at that position. Help us, Lord, to see life. As you would see life, Lord, it's not about ourselves, it's about you. We thank you, Lord. Motivate us, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.